Well, this weekend, we as a church family turn our full attention toward that unique season of the year we call Christmas. While so many of our familiar carols proclaim it as a time of great joy for all, we know for that for some that's just not true. But for many of us, it is a season we anticipate with thoughts of family, gift-giving, and beloved traditions. Now, at the Workman household, we have a tradition of hanging Christmas stockings on the mantle of the fireplace for each member of our family, canines included. And recently, I learned that our tradition has deep roots in Christmas folklore. Apparently, the original St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa Claus, was a fourth-century bishop in what is now the modern-day country of Turkey. And old St. Nick was a devout man known for his generosity. <clears throat> and legend has it that one night he secretly stopped by the home of a very poor family in the neighborhood. Now, there were three daughters in the family, and as they slept, each of the girls had left their stockings to dry by the fireplace. Seeing this, Nicholas quietly left a gift, a small bag of coins, in each of the girls' stockings. But it's the rest of the story that makes it so special. You see, the girls' parents were so poor that they couldn't afford the dowry needed for their three girls to marry. And such a plight in that day would have almost certainly consigned all three to a life of degradation in the illegal illegal sex trade. So in the Workman household, we've been honoring the legacy of St. Nicholas over 1,600 years later without even realizing it. Now, unfortunately, we've never really managed to recapture the nobility of the whole bag of coins thing. Our stockings are filled mainly with candy and gag gifts for the humans and and squeaky toys for the canines. And ladies, you'll have to forgive me on this, but one of the gifts I try to cleverly disguise in my my wife Lynn's stocking each year is a brand new pot scrubber. It's only by God's grace that 33 Christmases later, she still goes by the name Mrs. Workman. That's an act of God. And now that I've lost half of the congregation, let me invite all of us to look back at the familiar story that gives the season its reason and the traditions their meaning. For our text today comes from Luke chapter 2, which records for us the only known historical count of what writer C.S. Lewis called the central miracle asserted by Christians, the birth of God's only begotten son, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, some of you might say, wait, pastor, Matthew's gospel also has an account of the first Christmas, and In a manner of speaking, that's true. You see, Matthew described the angel's visit to Joseph before Christ's birth and then picked up the story after Jesus was born with the later visit of the wise men from the east. 
But of the night Christ was born and the circumstances of his birth, only Luke, the physician and eminent historian, recorded those events. Now, most likely, Mary herself was the source of much of what Luke wrote, for he later mentioned that that Mary treasured all these things in her heart, a comment that probably came directly from her lips. So reading now the familiar story from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The title of today's message is Not Just Any Days. Would you look to the Lord with me in prayer? Father, in the song we we just finished singing, we thank you for leaving your spirit until your work on earth is done. And Lord, today we need a work of your spirit in this place. For our heart's desire, our prayer, is that you would use your word to change us. But in order to do that, it will take a work of your spirit to use first my words. And then, Lord, to speak to our hearts, to receive not my words, but your word. And then, Lord, the work of the spirit to change us. And so we ask for that today. Would you transform each of us in some way to be more like Jesus as we leave this place? We ask it in his name. Amen. As we come to this time of studying God's word, may the Lord be with you. Well, the single best way of conceiving of faith and of a faithful life is as a story in which you are a character wrote Professor Daniel Taylor. Your life task is to be a character in the greatest story ever told. It's what you were created for. Well, if Taylor's observation is true, then the intersection of your life story with that of the central character in the greatest story ever told, the Lord Jesus Christ, is of utmost importance. And your response at that intersection whether it be to know him and to follow him or to head off in a direction of your own making will be the most important decision you will ever make. Of course, understanding the whole story of Jesus inevitably takes us to eternity past where all of creation came into being through him and his story continues into eternity future where he will reign at the right hand of God the Father together with all those who have followed him in faith. But on the day described by Dr. Luke, Jesus' story became unique among gods and men. 
Indeed, apart from the incarnation, which literally means the enfleshment of God, the story of Christianity isn't much of a story at all. For the essence of our faith is wrapped up in this truth. Jesus revealed himself to men as God the Son, so that all who believe in him could be reborn as a son or daughter of God. In the incarnation, wrote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Now, as a practical matter, Luke's incarnation story is a tale of two journeys. The human journey he described from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea is about 80 miles on foot. It likely took Joseph and Mary about a week. But the journey for the infant Jesus was much farther than 80 miles, noted one commentator. To go from his heavenly throne, robed in divine glory, to Bethlehem's humble manger, wrapped in human frailty, is a journey so great that it stretches our mind's capacity to comprehend it. And so it is that we return to the story that marks the beginning of everything we celebrate in this Christmas season. In those days, wrote Dr. Luke. What days? Well, if you were a Jew living at that time, you could be forgiven for indulging the feeling that those were days of soul-crushing hopelessness. After all, Israel lived under the iron thumb of Roman occupation. And the local ruler, King Herod, was a Roman puppet who governed with sociopathic cruelty. Protecting their privilege was the main concern of the religious leaders. These were the worst, not the best of times. But the scriptures make it clear that these weren't just any days. For heaven's calendar bore this notation, the fullness of time. God was doing a new thing in those days. What can we learn from them? In those days, Dr. Luke wrote, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. The first thing the scriptures teach us about those days is they were real days recorded in the annals of human history. They weren't the once-upon-a-time days of Aesop's fables or Grimm's fairy tales. These weren't the mythological days of the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. Jesus laid aside the privileges of deity and was born on an actual date in human history. Now, it probably wasn't December 25th. That was a centuries later guesstimate on the part of church leaders. But it was on a date when Caesar Augustus sat on the Roman throne. And it was on a date, we're told in Matthew's gospel, when Herod ruled as Rome's client king. 
and it occurred during the days of the first registration or census when Quirinius was governing in Syria. So what do all these historical markers tell us? Well, it's quite likely that Jesus was born in or about the year 6 B.C., when all of the people and events noted for us by Luke, Matthew, and others, when all of those things aligned. But the key point for us today is this. Those days point to a real day in human history. History is his story, it's often been said. And Luke's birth narrative affirms this truth. But it's not only the broad brush of human history that bears the distinctive marks of Jesus' fingerprints. It's my history, and it's your history if you know him. How many of you can say with me today, I don't know where I would be if Jesus hadn't stepped into my history? In my case... That was in the spring of 1974. And I've seen him work in my history ever since, sometimes in the most amazing ways. For example, I've told you this story before, so I'll not belabor it, but, but the Lord preserved my life five years ago, although I didn't realize it in the moment. You see, I had a ticking time bomb in my chest due to a serious but as yet undiscovered, several serious undiscovered blockages in the arteries surrounding my heart. Medical tests revealed the problem the following April. But that winter, the Lord sent neighbors and friends to my house ten different times to shovel the snow off my driveway. Now, only once before in 10 years in that house had anyone but me shoveled the snow off of that driveway. And no one has done it since. <laughs> but that year, during the winter of 2014 and 15, I never shoveled my driveway once. Now, how many men die shoveling snow with a bad heart. My own grandfather, my dad's father, was one of them at age 55. But by God's grace, in those days, God quietly stepped into my history, bringing friends and neighbors to help protect me from harming myself. Those days tell us that our God is not a God of ancient folklore or spiritual fa fables. He's a God who stepped into real history in real time for the benefit of real men and women like you and like me. But those days also reveal another truth that I believe is particularly relevant for us today. You see, it was well known within religious circles in Israel that God's Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Over 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Micah had proclaimed, But you, O Bethlehem, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me a ruler, uh, for one who is to be ruler in Israel 
whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. But here's the issue. Mary and Joseph lived in Galilee, 80 miles to the north of Bethlehem. No small distance if sandals are your primary means of transportation. And then there was the little matter of Mary's pregnancy. Houston, we have a problem. Mary isn't up for a trip to Bethlehem. And so it was that Luke introduced us to two of the most unlikely characters you would ever think to meet at a cast reunion from the original Christmas story. Caesar Augustus and his right-hand military and foreign policy lieutenant in the province of Syria, Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. Now, Augustus was the most powerful man in the world, maybe the most powerful man who had ever lived to that point in time. Shortly after winning in battle the sole claim to the imperial throne, the Roman Senate gave him the title Caesar Augustus, which means exalted or sacred. It was a word reserved for describing the gods. So it shouldn't surprise us that it was during Augustus' reign that the idea of the emperor as a god had its origins. And yet in Luke's story of the birth of Jesus, we see the man who fancied himself a god was merely a pawn in the hands of the god who humbled himself to become a man. Now, you need to know that a Roman census was not primarily for the purpose of counting people. It was primarily for the purpose of raising taxes. And the Romans took the subject of taxation even more seriously than the IRS. And so the decree sent forth from Caesar's imperial palace in Rome was intended to enforce the subjugation of all the peoples of the world under the weight of Roman taxation. And enforcing it in the province of Syria, which included Nazareth and Bethlehem, fell to Caesar's faithful sidekick, Quirinius. To the watching world, the census was a sheer display of raw Roman power. But Luke's story makes this clear. It was God who was in control. For Caesar's decree was merely a tool God used to set his plan in motion. God's purposes would be accomplished on his schedule in the fullness of his time. And God's plan was to move a common Jewish peasant, the young woman to whom he was betrothed, and the unborn son she was carrying in her womb from Nazareth, to Bethlehem. The prophecy concerning God's ruler given by Micah hundreds of years earlier would be fulfilled in them. Caesar's census would assure it was so. In the fullness of God's time, Mary and Joseph made the 80-mile journey to Bethlehem, a journey that nothing in them wanted to take. They were driven there, or so it would seem by Caesar's census, but in reality they were guided there by the hand of God. 
So we might call these two unsuspecting Roman leaders, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the dupes of Christmas, D-U-P-E-S. Maybe give them nicknames like Gus and Q to help us remember them. And to help all of us remember their behind-the-scenes role in the Christmas story, I've asked our communications team in your bulletin today to provide each of you with cut-out figures of this dynamic duo. My hope is that you'll consider adding them to your own nativity set as I'm doing here. (laughs) And we do that to remember this, that God can and does even use the powerful and arrogant, however unwittingly, to accomplish His purposes. Now, as an aside, let me add that in my opinion, such a lesson is particularly relevant to believers in our own day. It's a lesson I fear some of us have forgotten. Brother or sister in the Lord, if you're so caught up with the clamor of events in Washington in our own day that in this season you miss the significance of what God did in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, then you need to reflect on the lesson we learn from Gus and Q. God set in motion this watershed event in human history and he used an arrogant pagan emperor to do it. As I follow some of you on social media, however, I'd be tempted to think that you've lost sight of that, that that what happens with the president or what happens with impeachment, whether you're for it or against it, it doesn't matter, that those things, not God's plan, will somehow determine the future of the world. If I didn't know better, I'd think that your hope is in some political party or Washington politician rather than in Mary's baby before whom the scriptures say one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here's a fun fact. Nine out of ten doctors agree no one's mind is changed by our political rants on Facebook. But sadly, the world takes note and applauds when they see Christians tear one another down on social media. So look, I'm not suggesting that the politics of the day are of no consequence. They are. And each one of us is accountable to the Lord for the stewardship of our vote and of our voice. But God forbid it one day be said of me that I cast my vote without concern for without regard for his concerns, as best I understand them, or that I use my voice published for the whole world to see to tear down other believers whose only crime is having different political views or priorities than me. Let's use our voices to lift up Jesus, not bring down the people he died for. Our hope should never be in the world's Caesars, be they in Rome, Washington, or elsewhere. Our hope is in God Almighty, and when needed, He'll even use Caesar to accomplish His plans. So those days remind us that He is a God of real history. They remind us that He'll use the mighty of the world to accomplish His purposes. But those days also remind us 
that we don't get a free pass from adversity when we journey with God. God may have used Caesar's senses to get them on the road to Bethlehem, but Joseph and his very pregnant fiance still had to make the trip. Eighty miles with a woman soon to give birth. Can you even imagine? On the morning our oldest Derek was born, my wife awakened me with the news that our baby was coming. We lived over here on Cedar Avenue, just four blocks from Allegheny General Hospital. And I suggested we walk there on such a beautiful Mother's Day morning. (laughs) It seemed like a good idea for about two blocks. But by the time we reached the hospital's front door, I'd been called names I had never been called, either before or since. Eighty miles. Can you even imagine? And as difficult as the trip must have been, Joseph and Mary's arrival at Bethlehem didn't signal the end to their problems. You know the story. No room in the inn, followed by the flight into Egypt to avoid the wrath of Herod. Way back in Nazareth, An angel had told Mary she had found favor with God. Poor Mary must have thought, if this is favor, I'd sure hate to be on his bad side. Church, following Jesus doesn't exempt Christians from adversity. But it does give us the very best traveling companion for the hard places along life's journey. For Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's experienced the worst this life has to offer, and he's able to bring the peace and comfort and hope we need as he walks with us through our difficult times as well. Finally, church, those days remind us that just as Jesus began his earthly journey in a place that screamed of need and insufficiency, so too must we begin our journey with him in a posture that speaks of the same. Could the original Christmas scene have been any more humbling? Nobody parents from a nowhere place. The Son of God surrounded in a strange town, Bethlehem, by the smell of hay and manure and birth. You know, the name Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. May we never forget that the one who started life in a feeding trough in the house of bread came to feed our souls for all eternity as the bread of life. And the same body that lay wrapped in in strips of swaddling cloth in Bethlehem's manger would later be wrapped in a linen cloth, laid in a tomb for our sake. But thank God, death couldn't hold him, and today he sits clothed in majesty at the right hand of God the Father on high. He came to save, to seek and to save the lost, said Dr. Luke, quoting Jesus, Luke 19.10. Only those who start from a place of need, who know that they're lost, can truly find him. Only those willing to knock 
will have the Savior open the door. Finding Jesus always begins by acknowledging our own need and admitting our own insufficiency to meet it. So the days described for us by Dr. Luke in this familiar Christmas story, they weren't just any days. Indeed, in those days, the God of eternity revealed himself in human history. In those days, the decree of the arrogant became the tool of the omnipotent. In those days, a poor couple's adversity changed the whole world's destiny. And in those days, a humble child in Bethlehem opened salvation's doorway for all men. What about you today? Are these days just like any days for you? Maybe they're filled with holiday gatherings and Christmas traditions, but inside, in your heart of hearts, there's an emptiness that none of the trappings of the season will ever fill. Do you find yourself in that place of need, that place of knowing there's something more, there's some greater purpose than I'm experiencing right now? If so, then this day for you could be like those days the scripture spoke of. This could be the day when Jesus steps into your history and when you begin to understand your place in the greatest story ever told, the place you were created for. If you'd like to know Jesus today, not just know about him. We all know something about him. If you'd like to know him today, then this is the right place. He's brought you here at this time, would you all bow your heads with me? And in these moments, if you're sitting here, and, and it, I've been describing you, you know that there's that empty place in your heart that's never been filled. There's an, an empty purpose that, that you want to know, God, what is my place in this world? There's a separation between you and him that you want to invite Jesus into your life today. Then I'm just going to ask you, while everyone else has their head bowed and is praying for us, I'm just going to ask you at your seat, would you simply pray a simple prayer of faith in your own words, something like this. Heavenly Father, today, I want this day to be different. I do have a hole in my heart that hasn't been feel, filled. There's an emptiness that I want you to fill. There's a separation that I want you to bridge. Lord Jesus, would you come into my life today? Would you forgive my sin and set me free? Would you fill the emptiness and, and, and begin to show me the purpose that you have for me? Would you do that today? I ask you to come in. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.